The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So, when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God for the people of God. Wow, did you hear those words? I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch. Let us pray. Dear Lord, these are hard words to hear, even harder to live out in our lives. So we're going to need your spirit to help us. We're going to need your spirit to teach us and then your spirit to empower us to do what we've heard. So speak to us now this morning, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Let me ask you, what do you think when you think of the word reconciliation? Think about it for a while. Do you you conjure up any images of what that might be? Um, Most of us, I think, when we see the word reconciliation, we think of kind of a reuniting of estranged parties. The Bible has many instances of reconciliation in that sense. Um, Perhaps the most recognizable story is the story, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how the younger of two sons demands his father's inheritance and he, he takes off to a foreign land and he squanders everything that he's been given with uh, reckless living. And, and then he returns because he really has nowhere else to go and he returns home and his father is waiting there with open arms and his father throws a party for him. That, that scene, that, that image of the father welcoming and embracing his uh, wayward son, powerful image that we associate with reconciliation. You might also think in the Old Testament of the story of Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, um, the sons of Isaac. Uh, Jacob's the one who was the younger of the two sons, but he steals from his older brother Esau 
his, his brother's birthright. And then later he tricks his father into giving him the blessing that is reserved for the older son. So, he, you know, he's kind of a treacherous figure, this Jacob. He, he, he eventually runs away from his brother because his brother is ready to kill him. Uh, he spends a number of years away. He gets married, starts a family. And then, true to his character, he gets in trouble with his his in-laws, and so he has to escape from them. And and he's returning home, and, and he gets word that his brother Esau is coming toward him. And he, he's kind of thinking, oh, my goodness, he's come to kill me. Uh, but in fact, as the story plays out, his brother Esau uh, welcomes him with open arms and forgives him, and they are reconciled. And so much like the prodigal son and the father, the two brothers are reconciled. So we, we think of that story. We might think of Joseph and his 11 brothers, the, the brothers that throw him into the pit and eventually sell him into slavery in Egypt. And there Joseph rises uh, in power. Uh, he oversees uh, the, uh, the famine and the the bountiful crops that have come before the famine. And so he oversees the storage houses. And so when his brothers uh, are reaching the point of starvation, they come to Egypt seeking help, not knowing that their, their brother Joseph would be waiting. And, uh, and then there's probably one of the most powerful, poignant scenes in the Old Testament of reconciliation with the, the brothers uh, and Joseph meeting for the first time after all these years. And Joseph is so overcome with emotion that he has to walk out of the room and he just weeps. Uh, and then he returns and, and they all embrace. And it's, a, it's just a wonderful scene in the Bible. So these stories uh, really kind of come to mind perhaps for you. They certainly, to me, when I think of the word reconciliation. But we can think about in our own contemporary lives experiences that we've had, perhaps uh, you know, an estranged couple getting back together, maybe going through counseling and, and, and they're able to kind of uh, make something happen that wasn't working before. They, we think of that as reconciliation. Or, or two brothers, much like Jacob and Esau, maybe you've known of such people, two siblings that have fought with each other for years and maybe haven't spoken to each other for years. And, and then something happens that brings them back together. And, um, and that reuniting uh, is just a, a wonderful uh, feeling of reconciliation. Sometimes it can be an abusive parent and a child, uh, both learning to, uh, you know, maybe to admit, uh, to acknowledge sin and to forgive sin. Um, the, you know, and you can, you can kind of fill in the blank for yourself. Reconciliation is, and, and you probably have your own images, your own examples of reconciliation. Now, this understanding of reconciliation is to be expected. I mean, that because the word itself comes from uh, two Latin words, re meaning again, and conciliare meaning bring together. So, so reconciliation, the English word, comes from this Latin um, addition of two words, and it means to bring together again. That's reconciliation. Reunite. At least that's reconciliation from the Latin. We might think of two opposing sides, you know, learning to compromise, and and they come together. Now, I don't need to tell you that we could use that kind of reconciliation in our land today, in our in our country. We 
we need those two opposing sides, uh, politically, theologically, otherwise. We need people to come together. We need people to learn how to compromise. We can use this reconciliation in such a really highly charged and divided political environment. But here's the caveat. This understanding of reconciliation is not what Jesus is talking about in our lesson today. As much as that makes sense, as much as that is a wonderful concept, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's a truth to what Jesus is saying that goes far deeper than that. Now remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, not in Latin. When Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother or sister in verse 24, Matthew, of course, is telling the story. And Matthew is telling the story in Greek. And so when Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother or sister, Matthew uses a Greek word, dialasso. He doesn't use a Latin word because, of course, he wasn't writing in Latin. Now, dialasso comes from two Greek words, not two Latin words, understandably. Dia, which is really a preposition and you could translate it from, if you want. And alasso, the other part of dialasso, means change. So dialasso, if you think about it, means to change from something to something else. To go from here to there. To go kind of like a metamorphosis from a cocoon to a butterfly. It occurs only one time, this word, dialasso, in the entire New Testament. Only one time. And it's right here. Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother or sister. He's saying, I want you to change from something to something else. Now, the, the root of that word appears in other places in the New Testament. Not a lot, but it does appear. The root word is alasso, which I've already said means change. It's found six times in the New Testament, but the most famous example uh, is found in 1 Corinthians. Now, in the, in the uh, 15th chapter, I want to read that to you, but I want you to give a little background. Remember, Paul is writing to a church that's really divided. You want to talk about a church that's divided. It was really divided. There were people who were saying, I'm, I'm following Apollos, and others were saying, I'm following Paul. And, and uh, Corinth was a town of, of all kinds of religions. It was, a, it was a cosmopolitan place. And so you had people bringing you know, threads of other religions into the congregation, into this baby congregation of Christians. And, and Paul is trying to, trying to tell them how to get along and why it's important to do that. And that's why we have the, you know, the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But here in the 15th chapter, he uses the word alasso. He says, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. That's the word alasso. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Alasso. Do you see what he, he's, he's talking about? 
eternal life, of course. He's talking about how we, how we change from this mortal life into, uh, into, a, uh, into a spiritual life. But he's also talking about the change of one's heart. We will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. That's what God wants to do with us. And he uses the word alasso. Like I said, it's only found six times in the Bible, and two of them are right here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, a variant of that word, much like dialasso, is a variant of alasso, but really with its root of change, is the word katalasso, katalasso. Now, that occurs about nine times in the Bible. See, these aren't words that appear hundreds of times. They're just a few times. Occurs nine times, and five of those occurrences are also in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. And so I want to read that to you. It's from 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. That's Catalasso who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That is, that's the ministry of Christians, of followers of Christ, followers of the way, is to be reconcilers. Catalasso. To be change agents, if you will. Now that, that first part, kata, kata means down. That's strange, change down. Maybe what Paul is telling us is that God has reached down to us, has, has in fact changed God's self into human form to change us. In the form of Jesus, God has reconciled us to God and now wants us to reconcile ourselves to our, to our brothers and sisters. Now, in the, time of, um, in the time of Jesus, as you know, uh, sacrifice was still pretty prevalent. And the Jews would bring all manner of sacrifices to the temple And really, what they were really wanting to do was change God. Think about it. What what they were doing is they were bringing these sacrifices saying, God, I know know we've done a lot of bad stuff and you want to punish us, but I'm going to give you this gift. I'm I'm hoping that you'll change your mind. And I'm hoping, I'm just praying that that you'll shed a little grace on the situation. Now, sacrificial... Worship uh, predates Judaism. Even back in pagan culture, people made all manner of sacrifices. And all of it was about changing their deities or their gods. They, they wanted to say to their gods, we, we, we need good weather for our crops. We, we want our cattle to reproduce. We, you know, they, all, of the, all of the sacrifices were about trying to change their deities so that their god would make a difference in their lives and wouldn't just destroy them. Well, the Hebrews were no different. They wanted God to change from judgment to mercy. And what Jesus is telling the people who would be very familiar with that practice of bringing sacrifices to the temple, 
what he was telling these people, before you attempt to change God, you need to change yourself. Remember from our lesson, Matthew 5, verses 23-24. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. And then come and offer your gift. You see, Jesus is simply saying reconciliation begins with us. It begins in our hearts. Not with the one with whom we want to be reconciled. We must be a new creation. We must be changed. We must become sort of that butterfly and stop being the crawly caterpillar. We've got to be a new creation in Christ. Our hearts are the ones that need to be altered. Now, do you want unity in our nation, in our church, and in your community? Do you, do you want that? Do, I do. Do you want harmony? Do you want us to get along better than we are now? I don't know about you, but I certainly do. Well, it has to start with us, you and me. Not with the other party. As much as we want the other side to do a lot of changing, it's got to start with us if we want reconciliation. You can't wait for the other side to begin the process. Remember the story of the prodigal son that I was talking about just a few minutes ago? If you remember, the prodigal son, when he's out in the, in the foreign land and he squanders all of his living, Luke tells us in the 15th chapter of Luke that he came to himself. And that's when he finally turned around and went back to his father. And he didn't go back to his father expecting a party. He didn't go there thinking his father was going to welcome him with open arms. No, he went there. He was willing to be a hired hand. That's what Luke tells us. But of course, when he gets there, his father welcomes him in open arms. But it all begins. The reconciliation didn't begin at the point of his father welcoming him. It began at the point when the son said, I've got to change. I've, and he comes to himself and he returns to his loving father. Reconciliation begins with a humble and contrite heart. As long as you think the other party is entirely wrong and you are entirely right, and reconciliation will be impossible. As long as you send emails criticizing the other side, as long as you post hate-filled speech on blogs, or retweet or like anger-filled messages on Facebook, as long as you do that, then don't bemoan the fact that there is no unity in our nation. Reconciliation will simply be impossible if that's what we are doing. Now, I've, I've told this story many times here, and you're probably tired of hearing me, but I, want to, I need to tell it again because it's one of those life experiences that stick with you your whole life and will with me until my dying day. But when I was a young pastor, when I was just starting out as a rookie preacher, I had all these wonderful plans and how the church ought to be 
what pastoral ministry ought to be. I was a lot like Phil. <laughs> no, Phil's much better than I. But um, I had this notion that, uh, you know, if, if people were going to come and get married, I was going to put them through the grist mill, you know. I, I got some other pastors together and we created a premarital counseling situation that I don't think I could pass today. <clears throat> well, I got a phone call one day from uh, a member of my church who was a leading member of the church. Ethel was her name. She was president of United Methodist Women. Now, we don't have a UMW here in, in our church, but, um, but in those early days, uh, most churches did. And uh, that was one group of people you didn't want to mess with. Uh, well, Ethel called me and she asked me if I would uh, perform the wedding of her son. And I said, I'd be glad to. Have him call me and we'll work out the premarital counseling. And she said, well, no, I don't think that's going to be possible. He's a teacher down in Blacksburg, sorry. And uh, he's not going to be able, I was serving up in Northern Virginia and she said, he's not going to be able to come up uh, to do that. I said, well, that's okay. I know a pastor down in Blacksburg, and he can do the counseling down there, and then, then I can do the wedding. And she said, no, 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 you just don't, you don't understand. He's busy. He's a teacher. He's always working. He, he just really doesn't have time for that. And I said, well, well when, when am I going to meet him? And she said, well, at the rehearsal. <laughs> I said, at the rehearsal? I said, I don't... I don't know how I can, I don't know that I can do that. And then you could tell the tone in her voice really change. Are you trying to tell me that you won't marry my son? She asked me. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm not really saying I won't marry. I'm just saying I, I can't do it that way. I, I'm, uh, can't we work something out? Well, she hung up before we could work anything out. She called back a few minutes later. She said, I'm so angry I could bite nails. And then she hung up again. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm pretty well convinced if we had been in the same room and if she had had a gun, uh, I wouldn't be here today. Well, as I said, Ethel was president of the United Methodist Women, so she continued to be very active in, in the fellowship groups of the church, but she stopped coming to worship on Sunday mornings. She was kind of waiting for me to leave. Her husband, Randy, was a trustee in the church, and um, he continued to kind of work around the church, always around other people so he could tell everybody, I'll come back to church when that preacher Horton leaves. Um, obviously, he did not come to worship on Sunday mornings either. Now, what you have to realize is I was just beginning in ministry. I had grown up in the church. The church, <laughs> the church had been my family. I was the fair-haired child, little Alvin, there he comes. <laughs> and I wasn't used to people hating me. And it was really a dark night of the soul for me. Well, a couple years passed, and uh, I heard that Randy's brother passed away. And I knew what I needed to do as a pastor. I knew what I did not want to do, but I knew what I needed to do. So I made my plans. I would go visit Randy, but I would time it just right and try to get there when I thought he was going to be at the funeral home. That way I could just leave my card. And um, 
That way I could say, Lord, I, I did what I was supposed to do. So one afternoon I, I made it to his house and I walked down the walkway to his door and the whole time I was pulling my card out of my pocket. I knocked lightly on the door and then I pulled out my pen to write my note. But before I could write the first word, the door opened and Randy was standing there. He had a storm door in between and so I told him through that storm door that I had come because I had heard about the death of his brother and I just wanted him to know that I was thinking of him. We talked for a while until eventually he cracked the storm door so we could talk sort of face to face. And finally he said, would you like to come in? I said, sure. And we went in and sat in his den and we talked for a long time. Well, I, I left after, after that. And a couple of days later, I went to the funeral. Uh, of course, I wasn't performing the funeral, but I sat in the back of the church on the back row. And when the service was over, um, back then they, they had uh, processions to the cemetery. And so I got in my car and I was the last car in the procession going to the cemetery. And uh, just as I was pulling through the gates of the cemetery, the funeral director was standing there and he waved, waved me down and had me stop. I rolled down my window and he said, are you Pastor Horton? And I, I said, yes, I am. And he said, the family has asked for you to pray at the end of the service over the grave. I knew what they had done that day. I knew what that meant. It seems like a little thing have someone pray. But I knew what they were saying to me. They were saying, I forgive you. And, and my acts over the last couple of days was my way of telling them that I had forgiven them. In, in my mind, that's what reconciliation is. It's coming together when, when you're just in a way that each has been changed. A couple of years passed and they made preparations. They retired and they were making their way to uh, Florida. And I was there on the last day they were in their home, in their home, wishing them well as they, as they left our community. Reconciliation requires change, change of the heart, change of one's very being. If you want a right relationship with God, if you want to be reconciled with God, then you must be reconciled with your brothers and your sisters. This is not a request. Jesus said, be reconciled. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. He couldn't be more plain than that. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we can affect reconciliation without being changed. Help us to realize that you came into our lives to change us so that we would become more like you. Help us, Lord. Give us the power to be agents of reconciliation in a divided world. Amen.